Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How you doing? Well, I just biked like six kilometers through like those fluffy snowflakes, which are so beautiful. But when you wear glasses on a bike, fluffy snowflakes really make it hard to see. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of perilous. You know, I actually I just 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 got home, just got to the microphone and uh, that was uh, that was that was something else. That was cool. How are you? <laughs> that sounds terrible. I'm great. <laughs> uh, I have gotten out of the city. I'm doing a little um, self-organized writing retreat. I'm in the mountains um, north of Los Angeles. And uh, it's like, it, it feels like an Ontario fall. Like it's really beautiful. Like the trees are all changing colors. It's like um, this mountainscape where I'm in a mountain that is surrounded by mountains. So it's just like trees all around and all the, all the leaves have changed and, uh, it's, it's really quite beautiful. I don't like the cold as you know, but you know, it's like five degrees and, um, really, 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 really sunny. This, the like West coast, uh, LA sun is still a part of this beautiful landscape and it's the perfect place to write. So I'm feeling pretty Mm. good. Yeah, look at you getting all weather diverse again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Having weather. Look at that. But, you know, <laughs> as we've talked about before this year, L.A. had lots of weather. So I shouldn't, you know, say that. Climate change. Uh, yeah. But uh, how are you? What's, what's up? Like, what's going on? Anything to, to, to just kind of wrap about before we get into the topic for today, which is the topic of last week and the topic of the week before that and the topic of the week before uh, that. Yeah. Uh, well, my next book is done. It's in, it's in the hands of the copy editors. So at this point, hey, um, the actual congratulations. content is finished. Thank you. So that'll be on sale for pre-sale soon. I'm sure I'll tell you all when that will happen, but it's, it's kind of like amazing to be finished a writing project because you look at these things like in such intense chunks, right? And, and you hope that you're building a narrative. And I'm not talking about fiction. I think fiction writing obviously is a bit different. But you, you look at these things in really intense chunks and you hope that they all fit together. And then you sit back and you're like, oh, man, I screwed up or, oh, yes, I did it. And uh, I'm pretty happy with it. So, yeah, that's kind of the big thing, I guess, for me this past week. That's great. Um, I saw the cover. Broken chair yeah. or like really, really old <laughs> falling apart chair. Um, cool. Yeah. Broken chair. Do you get to decide that or how does that, how does that work? Like, does the publisher decide? Uh, yeah. So every cover for, for my experience has been totally different. In this case, the publisher basically pitched it to me and was like, unless you have a huge problem with this, we're going with this. And I was like, I have no huge problems with this. This is sweet. So, uh, <laughs> there's always like a bit of a consultation, what kind of feeling, what kind of words would you use to describe the book? And that I guess is given to a designer and the designer works their magic. Okay, great. Well, that is really, really exciting. Uh, I'm really happy for you. Uh, your writing has always been really great. So I'm excited to read this next this next edition. Thank you. And you doing a writing retreat. I know why, because you're getting the end as well to your next project. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I feel really great about that. <laughs> I'm feeling <laughs> really, really great about that. Uh, I, you know, I think this the, the topic is really important, but it's been like... Um, you know, thinking about policing so deeply for so long, it's just like, <laughs> I try to be an optimistic person, but um, reading all the stories and choosing the stories and talking to people uh, about uh, the stories that I want to use to highlight the 
the reasons why policing fails, it kind of sucks. It, it absolutely yeah. sucks. Um, and, but I will say like one of the most interesting things that I learned very recently writing is about um, the history of how uh, the prohibition movement uh, against uh, sex work, which called itself an abolitionist movement, but I don't want to call it that, um, uh, prevailed in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s. Do you know the history of that? I don't. Um, well, I I continue to be surprised, even though I'm like a race scholar about how everything is about race. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's good. you know what, bringing that approach is just so good. You know, <laughs> like that shock is never, never let you go know. of it. <laughs> wow, what um, it basically to make a very long story short, uh, there was there were people who really wanted to. Uh, to have a prohibitionist approach to sex work. And there were people who wanted a regulationist approach. Uh, both approaches were shitty, <laughs> like, but one would have led to a different today than, than we have today. And uh, the, the prohibitionists were like super losing until they started to uh, portray sex work as um, white women's slavery. And it's oh. like, we don't even have slavery for, for black people anymore. <laughs> Like this, this is white women's slavery. And that changed the whole game for that, that rhetorical shift changed the whole game and, uh, and led to the success of the prohibition movement. Wow. And so you're talking late 1800s here or turn of the century? Late 1800s to early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And to put that into context, too, of a lot of the women's movement at that time being, uh, you know, pro-eugenics, a very, very openly white supremacist, but then also bringing in or fighting for public health reforms, you know, putting these things together, understanding how like modern social services come out so often out of the, 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 the drive to make sure that white supremacy is intact and remains intact and unthreatened within society is so fascinating to me. And so I'm so excited to see how that gets teased out through policing. And that's a big chunk of the first half of my book as well, uh, talking about public services, the social safety net, and how it was built to ensure that Canada had this white Christian nation that was supported more or less by its governments. Wow. It's almost as though, um, you know, like we should be working together to talk about such policies and so on. Maybe we should write a book together <laughs> or, you know, continue to do a podcast. There was an idea a while ago to have a, a Sandy and Nora uh, 10 rules for life. <laughs> we should have done that. We should have done There's that. There's still time. There's still time. That's right. That's right. Well, you know what else Sandy and Nora are doing really soon? Like super this week? I know, I know, I know. Yes. <laughs> well, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> we are heading to Winnipeg. We're, We're heading Winnipeg to Winnipeg Friday night at the West End Cultural Center. You can get your tickets at thepointofsale.com. Just look up Sandy and Nora. We are bringing along John Camille Farah. That is John Farah, the wonderful Palestinian Bramptonian pianist, probably one of the best pianists in Canada, but he doesn't just do piano work. He fuses um, Middle Eastern sounds with Bach and lots of electronics and lots of samples. And it's really going to be an amazing show, especially because Sandy, as you know, we got a grand piano for John. You have a grand piano for John. That's really, really cool. I'm very excited um, I am about, too. 
that and like for for the folks who were in Toronto they'll know um the 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 musical um uh, performance piece at, like it's just it's so stunning so you folks are really in for a treat um as am i because i always love doing this stuff so yeah yay yeah so make sure you know uh, buy your tickets obviously help us spread the word as well um i kept on running to people after our toronto show who were like what i didn't know you had a toronto show and it's like folks we're doing our best here so if you know anyone in winnipeg or around winnipeg and you think that they might be fans of sandy nora just be like hey don't forget, Friday night, Sandy Nora playing Winnipeg. Uh, we rely on you to help us get the word out. And that will be a lot of fun. It'll be a lot, a lot of fun. So looking forward to that. Very much so. And Nora, I am sure we have some people to thank. Do we have some gratitude to shell out? We sure do. Thank you so much to everyone this week that has donated to the podcast for the first time or changed their donations. Thanks also to everyone that stopped donating, uh, who've been donating for a long time. We know you can't, you don't have infinite money. So we really, really appreciate the contributions that you have been able to make this week, especially thanks to the folks that donated through Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Sandy and Nora, especially Zivi, Vincent, Zachary, Melissa, Bella, Aaron and Zuzana, thank you so much for your support. Thank you all so, so much. So, Nora, I think um, we are going to be talking a little bit more about uh, what we've been talking about in the last few weeks, uh, the war. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we get there, I, th I think we should just note that there has been an update to the Michaels story. Do you remember the Michaels story? <laughs> I have been waiting for this moment for the for the for the finally the time we can talk about hmm maybe one of them was a spy hmm, hmm, hmm. yeah so for listeners who may not remember uh, there were two Michaels who were detained in China uh, Canadian Michaels uh, were detained in China at the time there was some uh, a criminal case against Meng Wanzhou, who was in Canada, and Canada allowed uh, for her to be uh, transferred to the United States for that for that court case. And it seemed as a retaliation that China um, uh, uh, detained these two Michaels. And China's um, uh, uh, narrative on it was that these two Michaels were spies, uh, spies uh, from Canada. And Canada, of course, was like that's. That's outrageous. They're they're not spies. Um, that's part of um, China's uh, narrative, and uh, and they were detained and uh, found guilty without a proper trial, and so on. And didn't hear much until uh, later. The court case um, in the U.S. Uh, when it was completed, um, the the Meng Wanzhou was released, and uh, at, I think I believe it was the same day or the day afterwards. The Michaels were also released and sent back to Canada. Ah, yes. Our glorious Michaels. I mean, this was such a bizarre story. And I think that the fact that it happened during the pandemic was actually important because it gave the Canadian government something to rally Canadians around. So we have these two guys named Michael. So I mean, like just on the PR side, it's amazing. Two Michaels, two Furious. Although now it's one Furious and two Michaels. But anyway, there's like 300,000 Canadian nationals who are in China. And so for the Chinese government to pick up these two Michaels kind of warranted the questions, okay, so what exactly are they up to? And you'll remember over the course of their detention, they were detained for a thousand days, more than a thousand days. I mean, we're talking like devastating levels of, of detention. 
throughout the whole process, Michael Kovrig was more of the public face. You know, his ex-wife was his advocate and she made many media interventions over the course of the time that he was detained. But Michael Spavor, we didn't hear very much from him. Now, he had the more interesting kind of backstory because Spavor was the one who had these photos of him with the leadership of North Korea, and he operated tours in North Korea. So that was always like, hmm, that seems kind of like a weird thing for a Canadian to do. And now he's been arrested for espionage. What's coming out now in the Globe and Mail is that Spavor is suing Kovrig because he's alleging that information that made it to Kovrig from Spavor about North Korea was then sent on to other officials that made it into the Five Eyes security network that Canada is part of with the United States, Australia, UK, and New Zealand. So this is all very, very, very fascinating. And it's it's not surprising at the fuck all if you like have half a brain. I'm sh- I know on this show we talk many times about whether or not one of them or both of them were probably spies. Um, of course, espionage is also one of these things that, you know, you know, business secrets and a lot of things can be called espionage that aren't necessarily exactly espionage. But there was no one in the Canadian mainstream media that ever took the time to, like, question the narrative. Could it be the fact that China is not just randomly picking up two guys named Michael and detaining them in uh, in reaction to what we did to Meng Wanzhou, could there be something else about these two that is actually sending a signal to Canada that China knows very, very well that they actually have engaged in something that looks like espionage? And some of the things that have come out since this news broke this past weekend in the Globe and Mail were, were like really wonderful memories, like the Globe and Mail asking Canadians to write letters to them, like R2 Michaels. Do you remember that? I fully do not. That's what? (laughs) No. Right. Okay. So there was that. Uh, There was this wonderful column written by Susan Delacourt, who is just like the worst columnist in Canada. Um, And during the, the conversations around who Canada should appoint to oversee foreign interference into Canadian politics, she suggested the two Michaels. Oh my God. What? Could you imagine? Like, I, I got, I got, guys, I'm the smartest columnist in Canada. Do you know who I think it should be? I'm not going to suggest fucking, I don't even know, Mikhail Jean. I'm not going to, I'm not going to suggest fucking, I'm just thinking of random people, uh, the, John Horgan. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest the two Michaels, the guys who were probably spies. <laughs> um, okay. No one, I guess, of her editors were like, hey, Susan, like, this is hilariously bad. Why would you suggest that? No, that was a column. Okay, fine. And so here it comes out. Now, if the allegations of Spavor's lawsuit are true, that means that Canada allowed these two men to wallow in prison while they played this ridiculous game with the United States with Meng Wanzhou from Huawei. Because like you, you mentioned earlier that you know she was, she was facing criminal charges in the United States because the United States alleged that a subsidiary of Huawei violated bullshit international sanctions against Iran, let's be clear, by allowing some sort of technology to be purchased by Iran in their telecommunications systems. And Canada was like, Donald Trump seems stable. Let's play ball with this guy. <laughs> Arrest her. And then then the Chinese retaliate by arresting the two Michaels. If this was high-level espionage, if this was the case that these guys were not randomly walking down streets in China and pulled off the street and jailed, that can't, this means that Canada very well put, could have put both of their lives into jeopardy over very stupid politics. So I, 
I, I, you know, sometimes you get to live long enough to see things happen where you're like, huh, I knew that. Um, and this is one of those situations that I really can't wait for more information to come out on. Yeah. And uh, CTV is reporting that uh, Spaver is also uh, seeking a multi-million dollar settlement from Ottawa itself. And that that little tidbit about the letters makes uh, Global Affairs Canada's statement make sense. <laughs> because I was like, why does the statement sound like this? I'm going to read the statement to you. So in response uh, to, to this lawsuit being filed, Global Affairs Canada has said, uh, perpetuating the notion that either Michael was involved in espionage is only pe- perpetuating a false narrative under which they were detained by China. These two men went through an unbelievably difficult ordeal, and every day of their arbitrary detention showed strength, perseverance, resilience, and grace. They inspired all of Canada, and as a country, we breathed a collective sigh of relief when they returned home. <laughs> I was like, that's so, that's such a weird statement. What what is this? Um, But yeah, I guess not. Sure. Yeah. We needed them as a plaything. Sorry, guys. Awful. Um, Okay. Let's move on. Nora, you know, uh, I, I mentioned this to you the other day, so I'm just going to mention it on the pod. Uh, We have a minority government. Oh my God. I totally forgot. Yeah, because there's this like weird agreement thing that's happening, um, where it's like you know, the the party that that has holds the balance of power has agreed to prop up the liberals uh, for, I don't know, some undisclosed amount of time until the liberals do what they promise to do um, several fucking years over. Like I don't know, like uh, sure, but I, if I were in parliament right now and i don't know my party had a position on a war slash genocide that was going on i I don't know it for me for me this might be a reason to break such uh, a ill-advised agreement i mean for me what do you think yeah i think you know so here we are at week seven basically of this mm-hmm. of this horrifying un, unjustifiable indefensible uh, campaign against gaza that is being done under the auspices of retaliation for uh to, to try and get hostages back i mean of course and 1200 people who were murdered but the hostages are playing a very key role in this israel has leveled parts of gaza making them uninhabitable, making them uh, like places that cannot be rebuilt in any kind of short period of time. At the same time, of course, making the conditions probably for those hostages deadly if they're even still alive, right? Like if, I don't know, if my whole family was being held by my neighbor, I wouldn't bomb his house into the ground. I'd be doing everything fucking possible to convince my neighbor to give me my family back, right? Like, you know, there's this ridiculous fidelity in mainstream media to continuously believe Israel, believe Israel that this is over the hostages, believe Israel that this is over uh, the uh, Hamas having headquarters in hospitals or in schools or in UN buildings or whatever. And it's like time and a time and time and time and time and time and time. We, we know that these things are not true, that if it was about the hostages, they wouldn't be bombing the West Bank or they wouldn't be killing people in the West Bank. If it was about the hostages, 
they would probably agree to some sort of negotiations or ceasefires to actually get hostages released. If it was about the tunnels under Al-Shifa Hospital, we would see evidence of those tunnels. They'd be waving that evidence in our faces all over the place. And Canadian media would be eagerly showing us. And that's not what's happening. And so, you know, as many listeners know, Sandy and I don't really talk about the topics before we get onto the show. And I was really, really, really curious to hear where you think we're at, Sandy. But I think the way that you started this off, and, and certainly what the way that I've been thinking about this, is the lies are becoming too untenable. Mm-hmm. And the the lies becoming too untenable uh, because we're seeing evidence that they're not true, but also because of the incredible activism that we're seeing right now, historic levels of activism, mm-hmm. that it is forcing politicians to... I'm not sure, maybe pause, maybe humanitarian pause themselves, <laughs> uh, maybe pushing some uh, politicians into maybe different directions that they perhaps were weeks ago. Certainly seeing Emmanuel Macron calling for a ceasefire is pretty, pretty significant. And so here we're finally in a moment where Justin Trudeau, I mean, he's still weak and he's drama teacherish and it's hard to listen to him because it's very cringy, but he's actually starting to say, oh, shit, maybe there is too many Maybe maybe this is the number, actually. Maybe 1,200 or maybe 12,000 or 15,000 is, is our red line in Canada. And maybe now we're going to start using different language. And that is a testament to the activism that we're seeing right now. So while it's all so very horrible and there's lots of people died and, you know, there's thousands of people who are trapped under the rubble and we're hearing this more and more from officials in Palestine, there is cracks in the in the consensus that are exposed that does actually give me a little bit of hope. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it shouldn't have been allowed to go on this long without those cracks showing themselves. Like the politicians actually, they have to respond to like, this is a uh, uh, global mass movement at this point of people demanding that um, that this uh, this siege, this genocide not continue. And that at the very least that there's a ceasefire so that people, um, you know, can be, uh, taken care of, supported, uh, saved, uh, and that the siege end itself, if not the occupation, you know, Spain has taken um, uh, some some steps to towards recognizing Palestine. Um, even like there's there's a lot of shifting that's going on, and uh, quite frankly, for for me in Canada, it's taken too long, like to have that many people out on the streets over and over in these sustained actions, um, and and even you know seeing. Um, some of the actions that took place this week, the the what happened at the Giller Prize, for example, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about. Uh, but what what I am the reason why I started the way I did is that you know I, you were starting to see um, not just Justin Trudeau trying to walk a line or whatever he's trying to do uh, to appease um, people who are on the ground who are who are clearly saying like you know. Not only are you unpopular uh, for whatever is going on in Canada, like this, this could tank you. Like there are so many people, uh, you can't, you cannot just remain steadfastly um, uh, loyal to Israel under these conditions, and the people will not accept that. Um, but we're also starting to see some politicians uh, showing up from the NDP uh, to rallies and, and you know making statements of support and. You know, as we've said before on this podcast, we said it, I think, in the first week, there's more than you can do than just statements if you are an elected representative in this country. And certainly if you hold the balance of power, there are there's a there's a lot more power that you have to be able to. 
uh, force uh, the ruling party to do the right thing, especially if they're teetering. Like you should be talking about this. And um, to me, it's a little bit strange, actually, that there hasn't been any any sort of discussion about that, like in a political analysis sort of way. Like we are we are we have a minority government. Like if if people are demanding that something change and the government that's in power is not changing that thing, then we should be talking to the other parties about like, well, what does this mean for you? And what would you do about it? And if the if NDP members of the NDP are, are signifying that they're in favor of a ceasefire, and some even signifier signifying more than that, well, it behooves them to be doing some work behind the scenes to use their power to do something about this. Yeah, like, you know, it doesn't actually take too much, though, to realize where the NDP is in this, right? The only conversations that journalists and columnists kind of have allowed to have happen on this sucking and blowing agreement between the Liberals and the NDP is whether or not the NDP is ready to pull the plug based on pharmacare. Or, you know, some of the core issues. I've seen I've mm -hmm. seen some comments on dental, but not, not really. Pharmacare seems to be the one that people are saying might actually be enough to kill the agreement. But we have evidence of what an NDP in power would do. And we have that evidence in British Columbia and this past couple of weeks in Manitoba. So we've got Premier David Eby and Premier Wab Canoe, who both will not call for a ceasefire. Will not call for a ceasefire. Indefensible. It's indefensible. And the only hope that I have is that there are members of the caucus of the NDP federally and of those provincial governments who know that they haven't done enough and that they'll never forgive themselves for the rest of their lives. Because I just don't understand what what it feels like. How can you say that you're a progressive person to know what is happening in Palestine, to know that you have access to some level of power, whether it's through triggering the review of this agreement or triggering an election or being literally in power and being still too cowardly to take those positions. This is where we really see it. And I think that it's not just them. It's also in someone like Olivia Chow, who Every time she says something that's giving Israel too much benefit of the doubt or literally supporting Israel or whatever, she prefaces it by saying she's a lifelong peace activist. It's like, what are you doing? What do you think you're saying when you preface these things with as a lifelong peace activist? We see through you. Yeah, I think, you know, like it's um, really hard to watch. Um, this sort of equivocating happening in part because, uh, as we've said before, we know some of these folks and I can imagine what some of the conversations are that are that are going on. Uh, folks are, I'm sure, nervous uh, about what the consequences are going to be uh, if they do the right thing. And so behind closed doors, they'll be like, you know, I'm in favor of this. But, you know, like I've, I've heard that multiple times before on this particular issue. And I, I just like, <laughs> that just doesn't work for me. Like it doesn't work for me. It's not going to work for you. Um, for those of you who are listening, it's like, like, think about, like, take this to its logical conclusion. Think, take this all the way. Like, think about the literal worst thing that could happen here. It has nothing to do with you. The literal worst thing that could happen is not going to be happening to you. 
it's already happening to other people, but you could have an impact on that. And the worst thing that could happen if you do say something literally is that it doesn't have the impact. Like that's the worst thing that could happen is that it doesn't like Canada doesn't have the political impact that it needs to have to have an impact on a genocide that's happening. That's the worst. Whatever you're imagining is the worst. Whatever loss of power that you think you will have in your own life, whatever personal consequence, that is not the worst thing that could happen. And you will realize that in hindsight, when you are all going to be punished for not stepping up in the right way and doing the thing that you could have done when you could have done it. Whatever you're imagining is the worst thing. I promise you there is another worst thing that is happening. Like, please, please, like zoom out, look at this, like see the forest within the trees, you know, like just zoom out and take a look at what is actually happening. You can make a decision on who you want to be as this is happening. And look, people on the ground are making that decision very easy for you. People on the ground all over Canada, people in, on the ground all over the world are making the decision really fucking easy for you. And somehow, some of you are still frightened, still afraid. Like, I just, it doesn't make any sense. Like, the, the, the courage that, it need, that you need to say something, especially as an elected representative, okay? Like, you're one of the most protected people in the country, the courage that you need to say something is like a, a like a drop in the hat. It is really not much. Like if the worst is what happened to Sarah Jama, which is that you you're, you're kicked out of your caucus, like okay, <laughs> like okay, now what? You are alive. You still have your family you still have access to all of your 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 salary, your supports, whatever. You're elected. You are one of the most protected people in the country. Like what what exactly? Like what <laughs> it's not even courage. It's literally just the impetus to do the right thing, to step out of line maybe or to try to 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 have the conversation behind the scenes and I hope this is happening. To to try to force everyone to make the collective decision to do the right thing. It's not enough to just like say, okay, I've seen I've seen the support and I'm going to myself say that I am in support of this so that people know that like I'm a good person. It's like it doesn't matter that you're a good person and you have these personal thoughts. You have power. Use it. Oh, yeah. Like there's really no question about this. And this is this is a moment of, of extreme clarity where things are so obvious they're rendered less obvious because of the interventions being made in media and from our politicians. But it is very clear on what side justice is here. I mean, it's, it's, it's so obvious. It's like, you know, it's probably the side that says, stop bombing everybody. Stop bombing everybody. And then we can sort all everything out, right? And the people who have put their jobs on the lines and their bodies on the lines, like the incredible activism that has shut down bridges, that has shut down the Scotiabank and Union Station in Toronto and lots of roads. Uh, you already mentioned the Giller Prize. That was really wonderful to see. And then that triggered a really wonderful statement of other authors in uh, Canada saying, like condemning how few people at the Giller Prize spoke out in support of those folks or, I mean, God, the people that booed, like, fuck them. 
the the activism that we've seen in London with Dr. Tarek Lubani, who's just been arrested potentially because ketchup was sprayed on an MP's office, like big fucking deal. Um, but here is another case of that. And the, the journalists at the London Free Press asking Western University if they've got any comment on their their faculty member doing this. It's just like that sucks. Why, like, why would you even ask them? What the hell do they have to do with this guy's free time? And then there's so many average people like, like Zara Alakras, who has lost her job from Global News, Arij Anwar. There was Sabrina Dehab, who's a, a school trustee in Hamilton, who's being investigated because she's posted pro-Palestinian messages online. There's Javier Davila, who's been suspended from the Toronto District School Board, also for comments made online that were pro-Palestinian. There's Mustafa Edzo, who we've talked about already, a pilot with Air Canada. I mean, this the, the list is sadly growing. And at some level, yes, it's scary. It, you don't want to lose your job. You don't want to lose everything. But but folks, like this, this is this is the moment. This is the moment where you put your politics into action. And you put them into action in different ways. You you demonstrate your support for Palestinians in different ways. You know, this past weekend, um, my partner and I got to go to a gala and we were there with a the cabinet minister and <laughs> we didn't win. There was a prize and we were up for a, a, a win. And when we lost, my partner leaned over to me and said, oh, my God, I had a whole speech prepared about Gaza. And the, 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 the award had nothing to do with international politics. He's like, gosh, I, I really it's too bad I didn't get the chance to say this. But I'm going to go and, con- and, and talk to the member of parliament anyway, because he has to hear this. And I wore a cafe to the ceremony. And, you know, I, he comes over because he has to because we were nominated and we're in his riding. Like you do the things that you can and you push these things as hard as you can. And and it changes culture. It changes how people are talking about this. And I'm I'm really heartened by the number of people who I know, people in my life who are more or less political, who have you know opinions on stuff, but they're not they're not professional opinion makers or anything like that. Who say, "Gosh, no, I really feel like the tide is changing in a public opinion in Canada in supporting Palestine. That people are really really supporting Palestinians." And it's like, yes, yes, yes. And every single action we take, and every single uh, step of bravery and courage that we take helps to move that needle along even further. And this is average people putting their bodies on the line. And to go back to the main point, which is the people with any level of power who are not putting their them, themselves on the line, you're cowards. You're fucking cowards. What is it going to take for you to not be a coward? Or are you just so addicted to the job, the office, the the title, the the, the fact that you got elected and all this shit to, to actually do and say the right thing? You're cowards. Yeah. And that, but the thing, like, even just what you just said, like, this is the piece that doesn't make any sense. As elected representatives, they are the most protected. They will keep their job. They will keep their salary, their power. I mean, if they're like sort of kicked out of caucus or something like that, then sure, maybe there's like a, a shift in the amount of power that you have. But your power is still very much up there. Like I just and uh, not to mention there will even from like a cynics perspective, there are so many people on the ground who clearly will back you up and support you. So what what the fuck are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Like, just do the right thing. And like, um, shout out to all of the organizers, right, who are doing the right thing in the face of a lot of like um, really scary stuff that's going on. The uh, Islamophobia and anti-Semitic attacks by people who are like 
you know, the, the, the white supremacists who are like salivating at everything that's going on, that people aren't thinking about how this helps their organizing. Yeah. That's, that's a thing that's, that's happening. That is, um, that is scary, uh, for, for communities across Canada. And yet, you know, like in the face of that, like, look at, um, what people are, who are not from the, the, most protected echelons of society are risking. I think, uh, were you reading from the Maple just now when you were um, talking about uh, the, the the people? Yes, I was going to shout that article out uh, from David Mastracci, but go ahead. Yeah, so um, if Nora was just mentioning a number of people who have lost their jobs. Um, and there are people who are trying to uh, keep track of these uh, sort of uh, McCarthyist um uh, consequences for people who are fucking, so, you know, just literally support showing their support for not genocide, uh, for stop bombing people, for um, the the outrageously bad propaganda campaign that Israel is is waging um, in their. Uh, they're kind of like, this is the headquarters of Hamas. Look at this gun next to an MRI machine. Like it's, it's just, you know, um, again, indefensible and outrageous. Um, and yet, uh, and the consequences continue and that, that should be documented because, you know, once the dust settles and, um, and we are looking back at this in hindsight, there should be consequences to, to, uh, to the, to the, the employers who made these sorts of decisions. So I'm really glad, um, that the Maple, uh, Davida, I, uh, Mastracci, did I pronounce that right? Nora? Uh, Italian? <laughs> the local Italian says, yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> Davida Mastracci has been, uh, documenting, um, um, as much as I think uh, he can get access to in terms of uh, people who have lost their jobs. And so there is an article uh, on The Maple, which is an online news source, uh, independent news. Um, uh, and you can check that article out. Yeah. And you can also send him uh, tips, too. So if you know of anybody or you yourself has faced any kind of uh, repercussions for your advocacy for Palestine, you can email him at opinions at the maple.ca at readthemaple.ca or just search it i'm sure you can find find it out but you know f- we've talked about free speech and we've talked about uh pressure and, and and the things that we can do to to expose all the lies and i've already mentioned how the lies are becoming untenable and i think that that's a really important thing to focus on that so much of what we've talked about in the past six or seven weeks and so much of what I'm sure you, dear listener, have been experiencing feels like cognitive dissidence because it's like, you know, you, you a comment like, well, what about the children that Israel has been has killed gets turned into? Well, actually, this is why this is the real issue. The real issue is whatever the fuck is that is the hostages or, or, or is, is Hamas trying to obliterate Israel or whatever. And it's like we just have to stay clear-minded in understanding the propaganda war here and know that the forces that are making all of these things, these things not make any sense, those are the forces that make everything not make any sense. And it's like very, very basic. It's the forces of capitalism and of making as much money off of death and destruction as possible. And, you know, we can see Israel's land grab in a whole bunch of different ways. There's obviously oil interests and there's been expansion of oil already. Uh, there's um, interest in, in, in really like literally eradicating a population that, that has posed a threat to them for, you know, ever since the fucking Israel was dropped into there in the first place. 
And all of it goes back to the the, the war machine of, of making sure that there's money to be laundered and that there's people that get rich off of this and that people remain terrorized and afraid. And, you know, it's like tale as old as time, except we're able to watch this in real time. Uh, so we have the benefit of seeing things happening in real time in a way that no other generation in the history of the fucking planet has ever gotten to see. And, you know, you, you hope that that we're rational and you hope that we're reasonable people and that, you know, rationality will win the day someday. And, and, and you witness that it, it doesn't, that you have people like Andrew Coyne saying that Justin Trudeau talking, uh, uh, you know, dramatically about the deaths in Gaza is a betrayal to fucking Israel and all this kind of bullshit and saying this on a national television station and, and not getting any blowback and being like, the fuck are you talking about, Andrew Coyne? Shut the fuck up. Uh, you get a lot of, you know, calling uh, people who are Zionists, people saying that's anti-Semitic. It's like, well, if I call Ben Mulroney or Andrew Coyne a fucking Zionist, I'm not being anti-Semitic because they're not Jewish. You know, we have to keep our heads on straight in this stuff. And, and as the cracks in the consensus continue to grow, I do think that things are going to get worse in terms of there will be more firings and more suspensions and more disciplinary hearings. And I hope that people are considering creating some sort of national support body to help people who do face consequences on the job for their positions of for, for Palestine or for peace. Yeah, I what I can say is, you know, even though we are talking about some of the really um, disappointing moves or non moves uh, by by people in power, what I can say is that it's it's really quite obvious that the public support that we are showing from the ground is working. Uh, it's not only working uh, in a making uh, politicians do the little um, teeter-tottering, walking the line thing that Justin Trudeau seems to be doing right now. It's also working in the media. Now, I wish I could be talking about uh, Canadian media right now. <laughs> not so much. Um but it is certainly working um, in media like uh, like the BBC, for example, um, who uh, in the report uh, about Al Shifa Hospital and the 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 operation that the um, Israeli forces took on the Al Shifa Hospital, uh, going through and releasing that video that they said was unedited, the edited video that they said was unedited, that was showing the proof that this was the command center, uh, like they said, um, showing the reason why they they bombed and attacked that hospital, um, the reason why so many patients, children, infants had to die, um, uh, taking, taking reporters through um, a little tour where um, a paltry amount of weapons were found and they they finished by concluding that either the evidence wasn't found that this was a, a command center or it just never was a command center, which is like um, uh, quite a turn from how BBC had been reporting on this uh, in the first place. And so, um, you know, yes, that is in part because of the outrageousness of um, of Israel's uh, propaganda campaign, but it's also because of the people on the ground who are demanding better from media, from people in power, from politicians. Uh, and so it's working. It's working. It's working too slowly, but it's working. So let's keep on. 